Will you turn with me, please, to the 20th chapter of the Gospel of John. John chapter 20, verses 19 to the end of the chapter. Uh, If you're new to the New Testament, John is the fourth book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we've come now to the end of this fourth gospel. The good news that uh, John, one of Jesus' apostles, wrote. I've said a number of times as we've uh, talked about this book that this or that section of the text is a favorite of mine. We've come to another of those uh, parts of the text that I particularly like because I like to, to imagine what actually happened on the day that uh, John describes. I know that Dave Hunt and others have uh, expressed some concern about the concept of imaging. And I understand what they're talking about, that it's, uh, it's something that's employed in occult practices. But imagination is just the image-making factor of our mind. And I think we're intended to use our, our imaginations at times and to try to picture what actually went on. And I discover that when I, when I do that with this section, uh, I, I gain a, a profound sense of comfort from it. And I think you will, uh, will also. Let's begin reading with verse 19. <laughs> When therefore it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Shalom, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples therefore rejoiced when they saw the Lord. This was uh, Easter Sunday evening. Uh, historically, this is the first Sunday evening service of the church. Uh, from this point on, the church began to worship on uh, on Easter. And this apparently was a gathering, I think, of most of the Christians at that time. John calls them disciples. Luke designates, the, he describes them as the 11 apostles and the others, that is, all those that followed Jesus. Forty days later, or 50 days later, on the day of Pentecost, there were 120 that gathered. That's all the Christians that there were. So this must have been a very small gathering at this time. And they were able to squeeze into a room in a house in in Jerusalem. They were afraid. They locked the doors because they were afraid at any moment there would would come a knock on the door and some policeman would uh, hand hand them a warrant for their arrest, and they would be taken into custody and tried and perhaps executed as their Lord had been. So they were afraid. But uh, as they huddled together, they were discussing the experiences that people had had through the day. We know that there were people in that room that had seen the risen Lord. And they must have been comparing notes. Mary Magdalene must have told of her experience how she was standing in the dark in the garden in front of the tomb and She saw what she thought was the gardener, and she began to talk to him and discovered that it was her Lord. He spoke to her, Mary, he said, and she realized that he was her teacher, and she fell at his feet, and and she touched him. He was real. He wasn't a ghost. He wasn't a spirit. He wasn't a specter. He was real. And uh, then Peter and John must have told of their experience, how they ran to the tomb, and and John arrived first and looked in, and he, he saw the grave clothes. And then Peter ran past him into the interior of the tomb, and he saw the grave clothes following the contours of Jesus' body set up like a plaster cast. And over here, the, 
the wrappings that would have covered his torso, and over here the wrappings that would have bound his head, and in between the space where his head and neck should have been, but he just saw space, and he realized that his Lord had passed right through the wrappings. No one had unwrapped him. He hadn't wriggled out of the wrappings, but he had passed right through the wrappings, and that he had risen from the dead. And then Peter, who saw the wrappings later, saw the Lord himself. Our Lord made a special appearance uh, for Peter's sake. Peter was the one who denied him, and our Lord looked him up and appeared to him in order to comfort and encourage him, apparently, although we're not told anything about that appearance. And then there was another man uh, in the group whose name was Cleopas, who was traveling with a friend of his to his home in Emmaus, which was a little town just seven or eight miles from Jerusalem. And as they trudged along, they were talking about the events of the day. And... uh, Expressing their disappointment to one another, they thought, one was saying to the the other, that Jesus was the Messiah. And a a stranger fell in alongside them and began to chat with them. And he began to talk to them about the scriptures and tell them how the Old Testament predicted Messiah was to die and and rise again. And, And as they later described it, their hearts burned within them while they listened to him. And then they came to their house, and as was the custom in those days, since it was dark and it was, you know, he couldn't continue to travel, and the inns were terrible places to stay, they invited the stranger in and to spend the night. And as they, as they laid out the meal, the stranger picked up the bread, and he began to break it. And I think, although the text doesn't tell us, I think they saw his hands. All Luke tells us is that their eyes were opened, and they realized that it was the Lord. And they ran all the way back to Jerusalem to make this meeting, to tell the disciples in the room that they had seen the Lord. And as they were discussing these things, John tells us, and he was there, remember, John tells us that Jesus came and stood in their midst, and he said to them, Shalom. Now, I always imagined that Jesus walked through the wall. It's somehow you know, he could pass through the wall, and what they saw was his leg coming through, and then the rest of his body, and he appeared. But I don't think any longer that's what happened I think the Lord was there all the time invisible listening to their conversation he just appeared that's all he was invisible he became visible I think he was there while Mary was weeping unconsolably beside the tomb he was there he was just invisible I think he was there when the travelers on their way to Emmaus started out he was accompanying them but uh, they didn't see him he just appeared And I think he was there when John and Peter went into the tomb, invisible. He was present, just as he is today. When our Lord ascended, if you follow the description that Luke gives carefully in the book of Acts, you get the impression that there was a short vertical ascent and then he disappeared. He didn't go up into space like a rocket taking off from Cape Canaveral and disappear way off into the heavens. It was just a little vertical lift, and he disappeared. Heaven isn't up there or down there. You know, we use those spatial terms because they're useful to us, just as we do in talking about all sorts of things, geographical locations. But heaven isn't up there. It's another dimension. It's all around us. It's the realm of the unseen. It's just as real as the realm of the seen. But it's not off there. It's right there. And, and, And I believe our Lord is right here, present today in this room, just as real as he was in, in, the, in that room in Jerusalem. Unseen. But he's here. And he's with you as you drive home. 
this afternoon. He's with you in the family room while you watch the Super Bowl. He's with you when you go on dates. He's with you when you have business appointments. He's with you when you go hunting or fishing. He's with you in the kitchen. He's with you in your office, in your shop, on your ranch, your farm, on your tractor. Wherever you are, our Lord is there. He's present. One of the first things he said to the disciples when he appeared is, Touch me. See that I'm not a ghost. They, they, uh, Luke says that they were startled out of their wits when they saw him because they thought he was a ghost. And Jesus said, Here, touch me. I'm not a ghost. And then he, he, uh, he said, uh, You fellows have anything to eat around here? And uh, they licked up a piece of fish and uh, gave it to him, and, and our Lord ate it. He wasn't putting on a show. He was just trying to assure them that he wasn't a ghost. He was real. And remember the passage we read in Acts 10, those of, of us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He was real. At times he would be visible during the 40 days that he appeared, and then he would disappear. He was real. And he's still here today. Just as real as he was in that room. We've got to understand that. He's not off there somewhere. He's right here in this room. Knowing what we're saying. Hearing what we're thinking. A vital part of our life. Involved in everything that we do and say and, and think and, and feel. Now he said to the group in that room. Peace be with you. Now, that's a greeting that Jews used uh, quite frequently. I called up Jews for Jesus this last week. We were trying to set up a, uh, an appointment with Moishe Rosen to come down and uh, bring Jews for Jesus here uh, in 1988. And the young lady who answered the phone said, uh, Shalom, good morning. That's a greeting that Jews still use today. But our Lord had more in mind than a mere greeting. He wasn't saying good morning or good afternoon, good evening to the, the group in the room. Uh, our Lord never said anything without meaning. Three times in this passage, he says, peace be with you. That's because his legacy, his inheritance, what we receive as a result of his presence with us is peace. Do you understand that? That's where tranquility comes from. Jesus said, peace I give to you. My peace I leave with you. Not as the world gives, give I unto you. Don't let your heart be troubled, and don't let it be afraid. The peace that he gives is not like the peace that the world gives. The, the world's peace is short-lived, and, and it's transient. It doesn't last very long, and it's dependent, on, it's dependent uh, very often on a pill that you pop or something you, you find in a bottle or, or some success that you achieve as a person or the way other people... Uh, think about you or the way they feel about you it tends to be very short, short-lived. But the peace that Jesus gives endures. It's not like the world. And it comes from the realization that he's present with us. Uh, there's a little magazine that comes out of the courthouse. Some of you may have seen it on the, on the, uh, uh, at the front of, in, in the foyer there. And uh, there was a... Uh, article in the magazine about uh, understanding your husband, why he comes home and is such a crank, and why he gets in such a foul mood. And the point that the article made is that men are very easily destabilized out on the job, 
and uh, probably something uh, no more serious than a change in his routine has, has shaken him up. And so what you should do, this was the counsel that was offered, what you should do is be sure that your man goes out, goes off to work with a good breakfast. Because that's the one thing that will stabilize his day. Everything else may be unstable, but if he has a good breakfast, something he can count on, then uh, he'll be able to make it through the day and not lose his, uh, his cool. Well, you know, good breakfasts are great. I always appreciate a good breakfast. But what happens when you can't get a good breakfast? Uh, that, that's not what, what makes for tranquility through the day. See? It's that awareness that the Lord is with you wherever you go. As, as I said to Chris, the writer of Hebrews says, he will never, actually he quotes the Lord's words from, from the Old Testament, I will never leave you. I will never, and uses a double negative. We don't do that in English, but they did. I will never, ever, under any circumstances, whatever, forsake you. When you prepare a big meal this afternoon and you spend an hour or two cooking dinner and all the, all the men in the house uh, leave you with the dirty dishes and go downstairs to watch the Super Bowl and you're standing there with that big pile of dirty dishes feeling resentful and feeling that everybody has abandoned you, will you remember that the Lord is there? Hopefully you guys won't do that. But if, you know, if that happens, the Lord is there. And he says, Shalom, my peace I give unto you. When you're all alone at night and nobody, the telephone doesn't ring and no one's there to, to love you. When you feel that nobody in the world cares, you're all by yourself. I want you to understand that he's there in the room, just as real as he was in that room in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. And he still offers his peace. That's where it comes from. When you come back from the funeral and you have all those decisions to make and... And the husband that you depended on all those years to make those decisions for you is no longer there. He's there. He's there. And he's just as real as he was in this room. Now, uh, there are a number of things, actually, that Jesus said to them for, and to me they're very significant because uh, uh, these are the things that he said when he first came back and talked to the disciples. These were the things that were very much on his mind. These were the ideas he wanted to communicate, so we need to take them seriously. The first thing, as we've said, is that he offers tranquility. Verse 21, Jesus therefore said to them again, Peace be with you. Then he said, As the Father has sent me, I also send you. He gives tranquility and he also provides us with an activity. We are to do what our Lord did in the world. The Father sent him to do a particular work. He was, he was now passing on to the next generation the work that the Father had sent him to do. In other words, our work in this world is to do what our Lord Jesus did. Now, that's a very dignifying, ennobling concept. A lot of you, uh, after I made my comment last week about nobody likes their job, I had some men who came up afterwards and vigorously protested, and some women too. And I didn't mean to imply that nobody likes their job. But there are they're, they're always things about our jobs that we don't like, and some of them are absolutely mindless and meaningless. Some of you men, from time to time, look at the work you do, and you cannot, you cannot see any good purpose for what you do. Well, let me, let me say what, you know, I, I think that we need to have an entirely different perspective on work, both men and women. Work puts uh, bread on the table, pays the bills. Uh, 
work can do some good in this world in terms of just making life easier for others, and we need to serve the work in the sense that we do it well and do it for the Lord. Sloth and, and those sorts of things are, are you know, it's not something that, that we as Christians are to fall into. We ought to work hard. We ought to do our work for the Lord's sake. Well, let me say again, you and I will never find any satisfaction in our work, ultimately. Never, ever. I don't care how hard you work or how long you work, you won't. Because of the curse, the ground works hard and grows thorns and thistles. But I'll tell you what will satisfy you. If you can see that your preoccupation, your occupation may be one thing, but your preoccupation is to do in this world what our Lord did. As the Father, living Father has sent me, he said, so send I you. We're to do the work that Jesus did. A uh, long time ago, Ray Stedman pointed out to me that that Jesus himself describes his work in, in, in the Gospel of Luke. Let me read this to you. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Our Lord was reading Isaiah, Isaiah 61. Isaiah, as you know, is an 8th century prophet. He was talking about the coming exile of, of Israel. And he's promising the return of these exiles to Jerusalem. And this prophecy originally was placed in Isaiah's mouth and was directed to these returning uh, uh, exiles. But after the exile, it was applied to Messiah. Jews of that era knew that Messiah was to say this. And our Lord said it in the synagogue in Nazareth. That was his hometown, you know. He grew up there. And as was his custom, he went to the front of the synagogue on the Sabbath. And he took out the scroll of Isaiah and unrolled it to the section where Isaiah said this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Preach good news to the poor. Now, the poor... In that day were those that were sunk. They were beat. They had had it. We would say they're wasted. You know, their lives are ruined. He said, I, you know, the, the Spirit of God has sent me to preach good news to the people that are down and, and out. Number one. Number two, he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, those that are enslaved to drugs and sex and six-packs and whatever, ambition. You know, those things, the passions that drive us. And ultimately destroy us. He said, I've come to preach release or proclaim release from the captives. And recovery of sight to the blind, those that are deluded. Uh, like Shirley MacLaine, bless her heart. I, I, I don't know how many of you saw uh, her autobiography last week. I watched, uh, I watched it because I knew people would be asking me questions about it. And uh, I wanted to, to uh, hear what she had to say. I think what made it so powerful is that she played herself and played it rather convincingly. Now, I don't know if you realize it or not, but last Sunday night, you actually heard two demons speak. According to the write-up on, that, uh, on that, uh, uh, that program, she actually employed the medium who first spoke to her, the medium through which the spiritual entity spoke. The man that came in with the funny-looking hat was the actual medium who had spoken, uh, who had been used before. And the spiritual entity spoke through him. Verson and McPherson were the two so-called spiritual entities. They're demons, that's all. They're demons. They're not the disembodied spirits of, of people who had died in another era. This is Satan's trick, that he wants to play on people that are, you know, that are looking for God but looking in the wrong direction, who want some kind of spiritual realities but are going to the wrong sources, the wrong spirits to get them. And... Uh, 
as she said, she kept trying to get the demons, or she didn't call them demons, these spiritual entities to behave, and they wouldn't follow the script. They kept playing tricks on her, writing their own script. She wanted to recreate the original uh, dialogue that she had with these spirits, and they wouldn't play fair. So finally they had to just film the thing as it was. And what you heard on national television coming into your your living room or family room was two demons uh, announcing or declaring what Paul would call the teaching of demons. It's this idea that you're God and everything that you need is within yourself and all you have to do is just get a grip on yourself and you can cope with life. That is the basic doctrine that demons teach. You and, and you all by yourself can be God. You don't need God. I mean, that's demonism. And you heard two demons speaking. And she bought it. And a lot of people around the world are buying it. And it is a delusion from the pit of hell. And let's just face the fact that's exactly where those voices came from. That is not of God. Jesus is not one of the masters who taught that sort of thing. And, and she, along with a lot of people, were deluded. Now, uh, according to this passage, our Lord was sent to help the blind recover their sight. That's our task as well. And to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. The favorable year of the Lord is the uh, year of Jubilee. It's the 50th year where prisoners were, were turned out of jails and where debts were forgiven and land went back to the original owners. And it was a symbol in the Old Testament of the Messianic era when the Messiah would come and prisoners would be set free and guilt would be, uh, people would be uh, rendered free of their guilt. And the Lord said, Now I'm here to preach the favorable year of the Lord, in other words, the, the year of Jubilee, which symbolized this era in the Old Testament, has now come true. We're living in the year of Jubilee. It doesn't last 365 days. It lasts forever. The Lord has come back. He's reigning. Messiah's here and ruling, as Jesus said to Pilate. My kingdom is not of this world. It's a spiritual kingdom that he rules over. Now, that's what Jesus did. He went about helping the blind see. He uh, helped those that had been deluded to understand. Uh, he announced good news to the poverty-stricken, those that were poor in spirit, those that were destitute and, and had been oppressed and abused and misunderstood all of their lives. And uh, he, was, he was there to set free those that had been downtrodden. And that's our task as well. What a great task God has given to us to do precisely what our Lord did in this world. That's what Paul calls filling up the sufferings of Christ. In other words, our Lord suffered with God's people during this period of time and we, we complete the work that he did. Now, that's the second thing that our Lord says to this assembled group. This is the, this is the church assembled for the first time. He promises them his tranquility, inner peace. He promises them they'll have this activity and then he says in verse 22, when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. It brings to mind uh, Aslan breathing on people. If you read the Narnia tales, he would breathe on the children and they'd feel that hot breath uh, as a result. Now, this, this is a very difficult verse, and I uh, will honestly say I, I do not fully understand it. You run into all kinds of problems. If this is the time at which the uh, Christians receive the Holy Spirit, what is Pentecost? That's one question that's raised. What is this that happened to them at this point? Is this regeneration? Is this the filling of the Spirit? What ministry of the Spirit does this represent? 
And it raises the question of the Old Testament. What is the Holy Spirit doing in the Old Testament? Is he regenerating people? Is he filling people? Were all the, the saints, the believers of the Old Testament, filled with the Holy Spirit? Were they regenerated? These are all questions that I really cannot answer for you because the Old Testament is, uh, uh, by design, ambiguous on the subject of the Holy Spirit. We don't know much about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in that, in that period. But uh, I'll tell you what I think is happening here. The phrase, he breathed upon them, is actually taken from the second chapter of Genesis. In Genesis 2, we're told that God made man. He scraped together some dust, and he, and he made man, and he breathed into him the breath of God, and he became a living soul. In other words, man was given physical life when God breathed into him the life of God. And I think what this event is, is our Lord breathing into his disciples the breath of God so that they received the life of God. That's all the Holy Spirit is. It's the life of God, which our Lord at this point breathed into them. It's the life of God that never comes to an end. So we're talking about the eternal life of God that they receive as a resource. He gives them this task of... uh, of doing what he did in the world, and then he gives them God himself to indwell them, to empower them to carry out this task. Now, I don't know if at this point they were regenerated or not. Uh, In the upper room, our Lord looked at all of these disciples, less uh, Judas, and they said, you're all clean. So apparently at that point, they belonged to him, and I don't know precisely what what activity or ministry of the Spirit this this action of our Lord entails. I, I just don't know. But I know at this point, they received the life of God. Now, on the day of Pentecost, uh, I think what happened there is what we would call today perhaps the filling of the Holy Spirit for service. The Holy Spirit was poured out upon the church. Peter says, this is what Joel predicted. And if you go back to the prophet Joel, uh, you'll, you'll find that he predicted a time coming when Messiah would pour out the Spirit upon all flesh... And I think that's what you have in Acts. Without going into a lot of detail, I think the Spirit was poured out upon the 120 in the upper room. They tumbled out of that room onto the streets. They began to speak in known foreign languages, the languages of the Roman Empire. And the gospel began from that point to go out to the whole world. That's that's what we would call the filling or the controlling activity of the Spirit. Uh, Working through the apostles and the the rest of, of the Christians at that time to proclaim the good news to the world. That's what I think. And uh, this, this, uh, what's described here in John 20 is the first and necessary step in that process. They receive the life of God. Now, uh, these, these early periods of church history are transitional. You can't build any theology of the Holy Spirit upon it. You have to go to the epistles for that. And we know from the writings of Paul that when a person believes in Christ today, he immediately receives the Spirit of God. You don't have to wait for it. You don't have to tarry. You don't have to pray for it. He just gives it. Uh, remember what Jesus said? Uh, if you being evil, he's talking about fathers. He says, if you fathers being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. If they ask you for a, uh, uh, a, a piece of bread, you don't give them a rock. If they ask you for a fish, you don't hand them a snake. If you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. Is it not true that your heavenly Father will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? He wants to pour His life into yours. 
So when you come to the Lord Jesus and, and you believe in him, you put your trust in him as your Savior and Lord, immediately the Spirit of God, God himself, the life of God, is poured into your heart. And you have that resource for living. Now, I think that's what happened. I, I can't be sure. This is a, a very difficult passage. There's no question about that. But I think at this point they received the life of God. Aslan breathed on them, and they took in the Spirit of God. So they have his tranquility, they have his activity, they have his vitality. And I use that word in the original sense of, of life itself. They have the life of God resident within them. Now there's a fourth statement that Jesus makes in verse 23, and this is also a very difficult uh, text, and I'm sure none of you will be completely satisfied with my explanation, but uh, here goes nothing. Verse 23, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Now, uh, I'm sure that immediately raises a question in your mind. What, what do you mean? Do I have the right to go about forgiving people their sins? Or to say uh, to some poor desperate soul who, who wants to be forgiven, you, you can't be forgiven? What, what sort of authority is this that, that, we, that we wield? Well, the, the problem really, I think, is explained by the tenses. And I, I, I'd have to get Brian Fisher up here to explain the Greek tenses to you. That's not my thing. But I, I can tell you in general what, what's going on. The, he's not talking about actual forgiveness of sin. He's rather talking about the announcement or declaration of forgiveness. The passage itself makes it fairly clear that forgiveness comes first, and then what we do is announce that forgiveness. Forgiveness all, always comes on the basis of what Christ has already done. And on the basis of the work that he did on the cross and our acceptance of it, we can announce to people, your sins are forgiven you. Now, guilt is a terrible thing. Uh, I read something recently that came out of the Meninger cl uh, Clinic stating that the three-fourths of the people in mental, mental hospitals are there because of, of the problem of guilt. They are guilt-ridden, racked by anxiety over actions done in the past, uh, things that they've done and said that were so destructive to themselves and to others. And uh, it, it's a problem that, that everyone experiences. And what Jesus is saying is that we can tell people that they don't need any longer to feel guilty. When you come to Jesus and you accept the sacrifice that he made on the cross, we can say to them with authority, your sins are forgiven. And uh, sadly, if, if someone does not receive Christ or they only pretend to do so and it's not real, we, we would have to say to them, your sins are not forgiven. You see, there's no other way to receive forgiveness of sin than through accepting the sacrifice that Jesus made. Giving up of his life is what, is what dealt with the problem of sin in our lives. There's no way we can go on living sinlessly and pay for the past. Someone has to pay for that. Jesus did. And because he did, when we accept it, we, I, I can say it, you can say it, anyone can say it to another believer. If you put your trust in Christ, you receive forgiveness of sin. Now, remember when I read uh, Acts 10 to you a moment ago? You don't need to turn back to that passage. But let me read just the last two verses again. Peter says, He ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as the judge of the living and the dead. 
Of him, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, listen to this, everyone who believes in him has received forgiveness of sin. So that's Peter using this, uh, this principle. He came out of that upper room knowing exactly what it meant to offer forgiveness of sin. You know, he, he could announce it. Peter, who was the lead apostle, uh, could not himself uh, look at another person and say, you're forgiven or you're not forgiven. That, that's not the point. He could only announce forgiveness on the basis of Jesus' sacrifice. Now, you see, this is what Jesus said to this first church, and this is what he says to this church today in, in Boise, Idaho. He, he's here. He's present. He's with us. He's not off there somewhere. He's here in our midst. And he promises tranquility, inner peace, rest. And he gives us an activity. He gives us something to do. And he promises us that we have the life of God within us to do it. And the result of that task is that we can tell people that their sins have been forgiven. Uh, Somewhere in here I've got a poem I'd like to read to you. It has disappeared. Ah, here we go. No distant Lord have I, loving afar to be, made flesh for me. He cannot rest until he rests in me. I need not journey far, this dearest friend to see. Companionship is always mine. He makes his home with me. I envy not the twelve. Nearer to me is he. The life he once lived here on earth, he lives again in me. Ascended now to God, my witness there to be. His witness, here am I, because his spirit dwells in me. O glorious Son of God, incarnate deity, deity, I shall forever be with thee, because thou art with me. That poem very well sums up the truth of, of this passage. Now, uh, as you know, the story of Thomas follows. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. Didymus means twin. We don't know much about Thomas. We don't know whose twin he was. But uh, he was someone's, someone's twin. Thomas, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. Which I suppose exposes the peril of uh, not uh, attending church service. Something terrible might happen. <clears throat> Not really. Uh, The other disciples, therefore, were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I shall see in his hands the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days again, that's John's way of saying uh, a week later, the next Sunday morning, as the church gathered again, His disciples were inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst. He appeared again and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here your finger and see my hands, and reach here your hand and put it into my side, and be not unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Now, can you imagine a Jewish man saying that about another man? The uh, central tenet of Judaism is that there is one God. And uh, Thomas fell at Jesus' feet and says 
to, to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Many other signs, therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Now, very often, I think the way this passage is understood is that Thomas is doubting Thomas, doubtful Thomas, and our Lord rebukes him with this statement, You had to see to believe, but blessed are those who didn't see and believe, and they believe that he's talking about the other disciples who believed without seeing the nail prints in the hands. But if you go back and read the chapter carefully, you'll see that all the way through, the disciples and the others who were in that that upper room believed because they saw something. Peter and John saw the grave clothes. Mary Magdalene saw the Lord. Cleopas saw the Lord. Peter saw the Lord. The, the, the disciples in the upper room saw the Lord. Our Lord's not rebuking Thomas. This, as someone has called it, best and last beatitude, is not addressed to the rest of the disciples in contrast to Thomas, who had to have hard evidence. It's rather addressed to us. Because notice how John goes on. He says, he says many other signs did Jesus do in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, that is, these signs were, were done in the presence of the other disciples and written down so that you may believe. And the beatitude is addressed to those of us who don't have the opportunity to see the risen Lord visible right here in our presence, but who have to depend upon the eyewitness reports of people who did see the Lord and then wrote it down. That's the point he's making. He's not rebuking Thomas. Thomas wasn't there on that particular Sunday. I don't know. Maybe he was off fishing. And, uh, and he, he comes back and they say, We've seen the Lord, Thomas. Oh, come on. You're pulling my leg. You, you didn't see the Lord. They, we did. We saw him. And Thomas says, Well, I've got to see to believe. And so the next Sunday he shows up at the church service because he was a seeking man. He was not a dishonest doubter. He was a seeker. He had an open heart. And the Lord showed himself to Thomas, which is what he will do to you. If you think it's true, if you suspect it's true, if you have the slightest suspicion that it's true, if you doubt that it's true but you still hunger after God with all of your heart, then the Lord's going to look you up and manifest himself to you. That's the kind of Lord he is. If you have doubts, you know, welcome to the human race. If you don't have doubts, I'm concerned about you. We ought to have doubts at times. And I sometimes read something in Scripture and I think, oh, that, that cannot. I, you know, I have conned myself into believing this. That couldn't possibly be true. And these doubts start to flash through my mind. But see, those are simply temptations to disbelieve. That is not doubt itself. And if we have a, a heart that hungers after God, he's going he's gonna to find you and he's going to manifest himself to you. And the way he'll do it, is through this book. That's the way he'll do it. You see, uh, the, the thing that makes Christianity unique is that it is historical. It happened. My uh, argument with my friend up here in McCall is that uh, Christianity is very unlike the other myths which seem to be similar because the myths didn't happen. Christianity did. See, Jesus was tried and put to death under Pontius Pilate. We can date him. We know exactly when he lived. 
and he was laid in a cold, hard tomb. We don't know if the tomb that's pointed out as his tomb is the right tomb, but if, if we'd find the right tomb, it would look precisely as it's described in, in, the, in the gospel accounts. It would be a real rock tomb, not a figment of someone's imagination. And when Jesus came back, you could put your hands on him, and you would feel something tangible, and he ate a piece of fish, which demonstrated that he was a real person. He wasn't a spirit. It really happened. It's not a myth. It's history. And one characteristic of history is that you can't run it by a whole bunch of times. It only happens once. It's non-repeatable. And so the only way to know anything about history is somebody has to be there to see it, and then he has to write it down in a book so other people can trust it. I can find out about it. And ultimately, they have to trust the credibility of the people who wrote, wrote it down. You see, and that's exactly what happened. John says, I was there. I was standing in the room. I saw him. He came in. He appeared. I put my hands on him. I saw him eat the, eat the uh, fish. I heard him talk. John says, that which we have seen and heard and touched and handled, we declare to you that you may have fellowship with us. That's why he wrote the Gospel of John. And this beatitude, this best and last beatitude is addressed to us. Blessed are those who read this book and believe what they read, you see. I've been recently reading George MacDonald's book, The Curate's Awakening. And uh, there's a young man uh, there, a young curate who's struggling in his faith, trying to find God. He's not a Christian. And he comes across uh, an elderly, godly uh, man by the name of Polworth who encourages him to read the New Testament. And I thought I would read just a section from that novel. What then would you have of me? What am I to do, inquired Wingfold. Your business, emphasized Polworth, is to acquaint yourself with the man Jesus. He will be the one, uh, he will be to you the one to reveal the Father. Take your New Testament as if you had never seen it before and read it to find out. The point is, There was a man who said he knew God and that if you would give heed to him, you should know him too. And I'd encourage you to do the same. I I know that that most of you are believers. Some of you may not be. I would encourage you to take your New Testament. Realize these things were written down by men who were eyewitnesses of these things. And begin to read it. And look at Jesus as the one who manifests God to us. You want to know what God is like? Then just look at Jesus. That's what he's like. What you see Jesus do and say is what God does and what he says. And an honest, searching heart, if you open your heart, open your eyes to the Lord Jesus, he will come into your life. He'll make himself manifest to you. And he'll say to you precisely what he has said to Christians for 1,900 years. Peace, peace, tranquility to you. As the Father has sent me, so send I you. He'll give you the gift of the life of God. And uh, he'll give you the privilege of, of proclaiming to the people around you that they've been set free from their sin. Let's pray. Thank you again, Father, for this. these reminders of truth. These men who who saw these things and who who invested their lives in them, who went to their deaths because of them, and who, as a result, changed the entire course of the world. 
And uh, we know, Lord, that knowing these things has changed our life. It's changed the course of our existence. It's given us a hope and a destiny and something to do with our lives that's lasting, eternal, enduring. It's saved us from wasting our time pursuing dreams and, and going down dead-end streets. And it's uh, given us a, a way of life that, that protects us from harm and damage. And we, we just want to thank you for that. And for those here, Lord, whose hearts are, are open and searching for you, we pray that you would make yourself real to them. As they look into the word, we pray that you'd manifest yourself. And that as they get to know you, they will become more and more like you. This is this we pray for all for all of us, for ourselves. In Jesus' name. Amen.